welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We've had a full day already. We've got sermon, baptisms. I mean, this is a good day. Grab your Bible, go to James chapter 1. We're just going to jump in. Let me see those Bibles real quick. Let me just see all of your, I want to see what you, what you think I mean by Bible. Um, <laughs> James 1. Let's just read a couple verses. And then we're going we're gonna, to, I mean, this, let's just, there's no, I'm not going to make it easy on you. Here we go. <clears throat> Verse 19. If you weren't here last week, you really missed out. Uh, so podcast it or listen to it. It will give you context for where we're going the next seven weeks. Next week, I have a dear friend, Tim Chaddock. He's preaching here. Tim uh, planted Reality Los Angeles, and then he planted Reality London, and now he's back as a teaching pastor up in uh, Carpinteria area, and he's going to be here for a Sunday. Um, here we go. Ready? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. <laughs> the grumbles. Are you kidding? <laughs> We're going to read this again, but hold on. Just want to set the tone. If you're here with a spouse or a roommate, no nudges today, okay? No, no little side glances, no arm, no fingers. Let's read this again. <laughs> And I just got to say, as your pastor, I love the local church. I love preaching. Um, I love preaching to a community that knows my weaknesses, knows my faults, my blind spots. I'm imperfect. And I, I really don't like preaching sermons that I have to preach to myself about. I love the sermons I've mastered. <laughs> James is not a book I've mastered in any sense of the form. So all the last two weeks, it's like God is laughing, not at me per se, but uh, he's having some fun with me, no doubt. Here we go. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You know, like, it's like one of those moments where I'm like, I'm just going to push play and let it do its thing. Like, just the word... It's going to work itself out. All we got to do is read scripture together. I, I find this fascinating. You know, James, it, it, he's just starting this whole thing. And he starts this book, which is written to disciples of Jesus, that he wants to live faithfully in their context. And he's building kind of, a, a, his writing is building an intentionality of how we are to be disciples of Jesus. And he doesn't start with like a greeting or like, hey, I've been praying for you. Like Paul, like, you know, spirit of wisdom and revelation and all oh, that you know the Father's love. Yes. He doesn't start. He starts with, all right, consider it joy when you're facing trials. And you're like, okay, buckle up. <laughs> James jumps in and he wants you to know as a disciple of Jesus, you are going to face trials. And then he goes on to temptations. He's like, all right, trials matter. The way you handle temptations matter. And then he just jumps into anger. Like if you were trying to build a, a, you know, a systematic theology, you don't start with anger. But if you're 
aiming to transform human relationships and life as we know it, then you have to deal with anger. And the most, uh, the, the things that influence James's teaching and writing is the wisdom literature of Proverbs. And then uh, Jesus is teaching, Jesus is his half-brother, half the teaching on the kingdom specifically from the Sermon on the Mount. So I just want to read real quick, remind you of one of the things that Jesus does. So the question I had all week was, why does James start with anger? But if you were to follow the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus does the Beatitudes and talks about how he's going to fulfill the law, verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Didn't see that coming. Apparently, it's a big deal to Jesus that he starts with anger too. And, and I realize that anger is the most fundamental problem in human life. Like you can't, deal, you can't go the extra mile. You can't turn the other cheek unless you deal with that inappropriate anger. You can't build what Jesus is trying to build through discipleship, what James is trying to build through the letter, the book of James in the local church, which is a redemptive community, if we're inappropriately angry. Like, so what we're talking about is the thing underneath the surface that hinders our relationship. So we, we know that anger in itself is not the problem. It's inappropriate anger. Let me clarify this for all of you, because I think the problem is we've been conditioned by our culture with inappropriate anger. And I just want to quick, a, look, a quick little side note. This is just for me. I'm taking notes here. Um, there's some problems I see in the way culture is pursuing social justice, I believe in biblical justice, and it's far more radical than the social justice that's out there. But the thing fueling social justice is anger, right? So pay attention. In James, it says human anger cannot produce the righteousness that God desires. That word righteousness is tied to an Old Testament understanding of the character of God, which is righteousness and justice combined. Anger can't produce it. Luna's totally distracted. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Luna, I love you, girl, but you're distracting me. <laughs> so if you want to sing, you can sing outside, okay? I love you so much. <laughs> I love kids. It's fine, it's fine. <laughs> Everyone thinks I hate dogs and kids now. I want to say this because we've had some of these recently. We have a growing church. We've got, you know, 30 kids got dedicated. I l you can bring kids. We want kids. We love kids. If they're going to keep, like, talking and interrupting, just take them out until they stop crying and, and then bring them back in. Is that okay? You're hearing it from me. As a preacher, it's just so hard to stay focused. There's a million distractions in the room. And I feel like I'm, I'm tending to what the Spirit wants me to do. And that, that if I'm imperfect, I'm imperfect. I'm trying my very best. That's all I say. So some of you are mad about that. Fine, let's talk about anger. <laughs> and, 
and Carlos isn't embarrassed. I've I have I have kids. I've walked out so many times. Right now, my oldest is sitting here, right here. He's old enough to sit. He's over here in the corner. He wanted to be in here. He's watching me preach. So, Lord knows, I'm being judged right now. Um, are you guys good? I'm feeling great. I know where this is going. I push play. It's going to preach itself. Carlos and I were close. It's fine. He's good. He's not upset. He's not embarrassed. He gets it. All right. So anger, let me, let me give you something on this. Anger is a mechanism designed by God to let you know something's wrong. Okay. So, so that's okay. Anger, listen to this. Anger announces something needs to change. Right? So anger in the emotional realm is like pain in the physical realm. You're walking barefoot. You step on a Lego barefoot. Pain shoots up in your foot. Something needs to change. Get off the Lego. In the same way, in the emotional realm, anger lets you know there's been a a boundary that's been crossed. Now, that's the appropriate form of anger, but in our context, in our over-emotionally volatile environment, <laughs> we've been tr- uh, obsessed or trained or uh, inappropriately trained and formed in anger in the wrong ways. So anger gets in the way of the formation Jesus has for you. It destroys relationships. This is why he's, he starts with anger. Because James knows that in human relationships, the uncontrolled anger leads to uncontrolled speech. Right? How many of you regret something you said in the heat of the moment? Can we just, let's all, we're in a safe place. I mean, you did it this week. (laughs) More hands. You're like, oh, I gotcha. The wise person, James reminds us, will learn to control the emotion of anger so and so eliminate one of, the most unco- um, one of the most common sources of hasty and unwise speak- speech. When you're angry, you say something you don't mean or intend or desire to say. So when we're, when we're, de- when we're building this new redemptive community, learning how to live the way of Jesus together as disciples of Jesus, we don't suppress anger. We don't push it off. We get rid of it. We use it appropriately so that we are formed in the image of God so that as disciples of Jesus, we use anger where it matters. And if you look at Jesus's example, it's usually to deal with injustice towards the poor, which is, or, you know, injustice towards spiritual leaders the Pharisees, most, I mean, I mean, Jesus used anger. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out on them. You ready for this? He walked into the temple courts where the Gentiles come in to exchange their, ink, their money to bring sacrifice to God. And the money changers are using balance, you know, weights that are, that are unjust, corrupt, so that the people that are traveling the farthest with the least income cannot worship God. He doesn't stop. And run, he doesn't aggressively run in anger. No, he pauses. And in one gospel letter, listen, he makes a whip. Right? <laughs> and then he's like, 
he kicks over the tables. Like that would have been a scene. He would have been arrested. And he said, My ho- the house can, is a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. My father's house. That's coming from a purity of heart, right? The person that cut you off, you didn't own that lane. It's not the same. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Your spouse who said, hey, would, you know, you clean the house, and they're like, hey, do you mind, you know, cleaning out the, the sink? I know you washed the dishes and put everything in the dishwasher, and you picked up the entire house, but you left some stuff here, and they didn't, they didn't actually say you, wa- you know, you cleaned up the house or washed the dishes. They just commented on the mess. Not hy- hyper- hypothetically speaking. <laughs> like, I, I've heard, I've read about these stories happening in some of the more or the less perfect marriages out there. <laughs> oh, gosh. Like I said, I'm not a master of this sermon. So here we go. Preaching from, uh, as, a, as a student of Jesus, is your natural response, grace and gentleness and love and patience, slow, or do you have that very quick reaction, that subtle jab that is passive-aggressive and brilliantly hilarious in your mind. (laughs) Do I need to elaborate? Are we good? James is like, get rid of it. You're going to live as a redemptive presence. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. James simply saying, we um, have to live in a way that reflects the character of Jesus. As disciples, there is now a new way of living. Are you with me? And he's, gonna, he's going to elaborate on this. And I want you to, so if you're like, okay, well, what do I do with my anger? I want to pause that because I know there's a temptation for you to go, okay, pastor, give me the three steps. James addresses that. And he, and he goes far deeper than I could ever go with three steps. But let's keep going in, in the rest of the passage. We'll just see how it goes. Genesis, or Genesis, James chapter 1, verse 21. It says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent or, or, or the word prevalent is the evil that remains in your life. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at himself and goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Like I said, plug and go. Let's go, James. Freaking power punch to the jugular. Here's, if you were to summarize this, it's really clear by itself. But at the end of the day, what James is after is you becoming the kind of disciple whose faith is in action. You see your faith by what you do. It's not what you think. It's not the concepts or the ideas, 
but it's lived in your everyday life. It is a movement, not of a religious system, but a movement of obedient disciples in ordinary life. Now, I want to I add on to this a couple of things, okay? Oh, Lord, help me remember what I need to preach. First off, he says, get rid of. It means to take off. It's like taking off a jacket of sin. Like, so moral filth, which is a really great word to describe sin here. Like, get rid of the moral filth in your life, that which is not appropriate for followers of Jesus. Get rid of all the evil. He's saying, take it off. Do the work that needs to get done. Get it, get it off. Like, take off the jacket of greed, the, you know, the hat of lust. Take off the shoes, you know, of consumerism, that insatiable desire to define yourself by what you buy and purchase. Get rid of the insecurity. Get rid of the pride and the hubris that makes you think yourself better than others. Take off the things that are not appropriate for you. Now, I love this concept because I can get that. I got a lot of those things I just named. That's just from this week in my confession time. He's saying, take that off, the moral filth. And and remember that... um, He's talking about sin, and, and I just I need to really reiterate this. And I know in our moment in Christian culture, we don't talk about sin that much. It's a really big deal. Right? It's Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He died on the cross to begin the new creation project. He died on the cross to defeat the enemy of death. He died on the cross to defeat Satan and take back the keys of ruling the cosmos from Satan when when Adam and Eve handed them to Satan. And he died for our sins and we're cleansed in our confession that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. We receive not only salvation, but we're cleansed from the impact. The point is sin's a big deal. James' goal for everyone who's a disciple is to live towards perfection. That word he uses in James chapter 1 is translated to perfect, perfection, mature, complete, not lacking in anything. This is the aim. He'll use it seven times in the book of James. The point is that you live in shalom, wholeness. Another way to say, and I love this, is your life is congruent. That The things you believe and the things that you do when your spouse is commenting on your cleanliness of the sink are congruent in Christ. This is his aim. Now, he goes on and he's like, look, um, you got to keep a rein on your tongue. And he says this phrase like, religion is worthless. This idea of religion is worthless. Like this idea, the word religion is actually used only a couple of times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts and Colossians. And it's a, a very general meaning. It's referring to worship in general, but specifically the outward practices of ceremonial honor of God. It's also seen as like a cultic worship in the temple, but James deliberately chooses a term that sharpens his point. Anyone who claims to have genuine religious experience must submit to the claim through a test in what your life looks like. Now, now stay with me for a second because I want to address something because I love what Jesus does here. In our culture right now, there is a movement of like kind of ancient philosophy Discipline equals freedom. How many of you have heard this phrase? That's Jocko Willink, a Navy SEAL, written books. But there's like this obsession over our capacity to do things, 
to create discipline in our lives over and over again will bring about the transformation we really, really want. And I believe some of that to be true. But in our age, in the church, it's really a self-help gospel. And, and, and I want to go even further, go like some of the problems I see in the church today is part of the thing we love, which is spiritual formation, movement. The idea that spiritual practices will enable you to be transformed. Where like in our culture, it's like three steps to changing your anger. Like this idea of like take off moral filth, what we want is to be told, all right, James, what do I got to put on now? What are the things I can do every single day to make myself less angry, to be better at this stuff, to be a better Christian? And James will not have none of that. He won't have it. There's nothing wrong with spiritual disciplines, except when they become the ends instead of the means. Like discipline, spiritual practices are like when you're learning how to play basketball. I'll stick to a sport. I know last week I tried to do golf. Um, didn't work. <laughs> With basketball, you learn the fundamentals. You learn what dribbling is. You learn a bounce pass. You learn a chest pass. You learn the you know, free throw and three-point line. These are the out-of-bounds. The point of learning the fundamentals is not to get good at the fundamentals. It's to play the game without thinking. And right now, this obsession for like my fast, my prayer, my Sabbath, my little disciplines, we, we see all these problems in our life and we're just, it's like, we're, it's like an app for everything in our life that's wrong. We're trying to fix ourselves. And James says, no, humbly accept the word. The answer is not to put on works of righteousness. It's actually to accept the gospel. You've heard discipline equals freedom. That's a lie. It will be something that you work for for the rest of your life and you will never be free. The truth is gospel equals freedom. The gospel is this. this. Jesus lived, died, preached the kingdom of God, died on the Roman cross, raised from the dead, and started a new creation project where he's king of all things. He's sitting on the throne right now. And the gospel we believe is Jesus came into this world to bring heaven on earth here and now. He eventually brought that to full completion with the cross and it will be fully consumed when he comes back. That's the good news. It's not that you can do prayer and change your life. It's that Jesus changes your life. And you won't get your anger right until you accept Jesus. You won't get your patience right. You won't get your spouse right. You won't get your parenting right. You won't get anything right until you recognize the source of everything is Christ. Jesus alone is what will give you freedom. And this is what he's saying. You got to accept the word, the gospel. You got to know and accept and receive and be humble about it, by the way. Think about countercultural that is. See, pride creeps in when I'm really good at my fast, when I'm really good at my prayer life. And we take all these religious activities thinking that that's the point. And the point is to become fire. <clears throat> the point isn't to figure out how to be good at religious activity. It's to become undone in the presence of God. To be in union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The perfect loving community. We are making our home. We are dwelling. We are living in the presence of God. And for whatever reason, we love to market, tweet, 
Instagram campaign email conference the practice. And we don't know the difference between a good set and the presence of God in our living room. And we've become so good at being amateurs over what, nothing, what doesn't matter rather than being experts in the presence. Now I'm speaking a different language. This whole thing is for you to be utterly undone in the presence of God. Do not settle for a devotional. Do not settle for a 10-day discipleship on defeating your anxiety. Learn to be in the presence of God. Learn to be in the presence of God. Learn to get yourself in the presence of God. Yes, disciplines matter. Spiritual disciplines are important, but don't obsess over those. Just accept the gospel. Let him into your life. And that's the point. He says, humbly accept the word. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Just, it's all good, man. I love the choice of ring there. <laughs> Sounded, I don't know if that was Godfather or what, but like I said, distractions. The failure in American church is we've produced consumers of religious goods. So those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves and their religion is worthless, meaningless. What they're doing, they're deceived. I want to just highlight this one more. I mean, man, I'm running out of time. Forget it. I'm going to go over time. You're blessed. Um, You literally have nothing more important right now. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you'll agree after this. Here we go. People can think they're right with God, but they really aren't. That's what James is saying. Right? So how do you know you're right with God? Like, how do you know... You're right with God. He's literally saying there are people who hear the word. They go to church. They study, they study this. They're pastors of churches. They teach it, but they don't do the word. And they're literally deceived by their religious activity. Like all the activity creates a lie, a false reality, an artificial environment for you to think that this is what it's about when it's actually the presence. It's actually something else. And so James, is say, he'll say in James chapter two, the person who fails to do the word is a person who hasn't truly accepted God's word at all. The point, wow, is that faith has to be evident in your life. So, How do you handle trials? How do you handle temptations? How do you talk to people? How do you listen to people? What do you do with inappropriate anger? That, for James, is the goldmine of discipleship. Through those things, they will know that you're a follower of Jesus. This is what he's getting at. That you're doing the word. It's not that your Bible's bigger than everyone else's. Right? It's not that you have, you know, on your like bio, some, you know, utmost for his high or, or some type of like your email <laughs> signature is like under Aslan's paw. <laughs> Remain in the vine, you know.
come on, that's not it. It's what do you do when no one's watching, the lights are off, your roommates are gone, and you're tempted. That reveals who you are, who you're not. So the question I've been asking, which is going to, you're going to love it, ready? How do you know you're saved? Everyone's like, oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Buckle up, let's go. How do you know you're saved? Like, I read this because I'm, I'm reading Sermon on the Mount as I prep because that really influences James's thought. And he says, Jesus actually says in verse 21 of chapter seven, at the end of this epic sermon, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will my father, of my father who is in heaven. And many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Like, did we not do all the religious stuff? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It doesn't feel good, does it? Like in our watered down discipleship of the American Christian church, isn't it so clear that we've made it just say a prayer and keep on living your life? Where is that in the Bible? The only thing I can think of is in Romans when he says, if you believe and confess that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, then you will be saved. And I'm like, yes. But then the problem with that is the definition of belief in the Greek. So let's go there logically. Okay, if that's what it means. Well, belief is not some intellectual idea. It's not some like concept that like I can believe in math, like I believe in Jesus and it's a subject in my mind and I believe I'm really a good husband, but really I'm acting as a bad word. It doesn't make sense. No, 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 no. Belief is dynamic. It's active. It's sitting and walking and living into. It's relaxing in. It's a, it's a process of your entire life being overwhelmed and consumed and bought in. It's won over. If you do all of that, if you have all of that, if you're won over, if you live out of, if you walk in, if you trust in, and if you relax in the reality that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, then you're saved. This is, I'm just, this is just the Bible. So you can read it for yourselves. Find your pastors that want to teach something else. I, I'm believing that the problem I see is that we've just made it so convenient and discipleship to Jesus is die. <laughs> you, want, you, want, you want to follow me? Pick up the cross. The most gruesome form of death known to man. Then you're worthy of me. Lay down your life. Go the second mile. Get rid of inappropriate anger. He lists it out. This is what's expected now. You're saved by grace. But look at this. The invitation is to now live in such a way that you're here and now on earth living in the reality of the kingdom of God so that when Jesus comes back or you die, you just keep on living. James' way of saying, how do you know you're saved, is you hear the word you accept the word and you do the word. You hear the good news today that Jesus can save you. 
that in the past historical event, he died on a cross, he raised from the dead, and he currently reigns as the king of kings and lord of lords. And you can believe that in your thought, but then he's going to invite you to believe that in your emotions, believe that in your body, believe that with your finances, believe that with your money, believe that with your time, believe that in your parenting, believe that in your workplace, believe that in your working out, believe it in your whole life because that's where this thing goes. Because if you try to compartmentalize God, you're not really a believer. Oh, this is a fun one. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's so great. How are we doing? Are we all right? I told you it would play itself. Can't wait for someone to say, hey, will you come preach a, a, as a guest teacher on the book of James? Happy to. Love it. I'll be there in a heartbeat. You're going to love the sermon. Accept the word and do the word. Over and over again, what um, James is going to offer you is these themes about how the message of Jesus, how the word of God is lived out in your life. You got to let it soak and saturate. It's like Mark 4. You got to become good soil to the seed of the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus so that it grows out every direction. And so if you accept the word and you do the word, James says over and over again, there's three primary ways you're going to watch this play itself out in your own life. You ready? Three ways. Number one, you're going to, have a, the tame, you're going to tame the tongue. Number two, you're going to have concern for the helpless. And number three, you're going to avoid worldliness. And we're going to define these things because he goes back and forth in the book of James. He'll, go, he'll, he'll highlight all of these. Like taming the tongue is a really big deal knowing that your words matter. And let me just say, I'm not just talking about your speech. I'm talking about your tweets, your social media posts. I'm talking about your emails and your texts. Are you good with that? However else you want to communicate here, I'm for it. Just know it's got to reflect the fact that Jesus is Lord of your life. If you're not a Christian, you're free. You can do whatever you want. If you don't go to the garden, but you are a Christian, this is the truth. So figure it out. <laughs> Concern for the, help, uh, the helpless overwhelming case. So look at the last part of this passage. It says in verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this, as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James is going to hit on this over and over again. You can't have faith without works. You can't have this concept of like believing something and not letting it live itself out, not just in your personal life, but in the life around you. When you are interacting in this world, we are designed to be formed by the righteousness of God. And if you read the Bible, 2,000 passages in the scriptures, one out of 15 verses, one out of five in the New Testament are about caring for the poor, caring for the marginalized, caring for the lost and the broken. We have to redeem the word justice. We have to redeem what, what, what God intends for the word justice to mean based on the biblical imagination, not based on culture. It's totally different. It does not play by the rules of culture. And we as a church are formed by righteousness. So therefore, what motivates us is not anger, but love. What motivates us is not anger or need for everything to be um, equal, but actually to bring about God's shalom, heaven on earth, which requires our acts of good works, of kindness, of generosity, of patience, of love, of letting that person get into the lane and not saying the mean thing in our head because we know we don't own the lane. That's for somebody here. That's someone right there. You get in that car and there's like a second, there's a demon inside of you. I'm going to deliver in that now. 
You know who you are. If you're a spouse of that person, you can say amen and nudge them on that one only, okay? Let them know, because they probably don't know. This is what we're after. We want to be a church that, that, repl- that sees this everywhere. We're, the, we're kind. We're generous. We care for those in need. We sacrifice for those that are in need. We share our stuff. We're serving the orphans and the widows of our day. We're take, we've always done that as a church, and we will always move that direction. We're like, oh, that makes you progressive politically. No, it does not. It makes us biblical. Get rid of the, religi- like the, the political spirit in the room. Just live the gospel. It will go to the margins. The kingdom of God flourishes there. So if you want the presence of Jesus, you got to go where he was, on the streets. Are we all right? And then the last thing is avoid worldliness. Over and over again, James will confront the way the church gets polluted by the world. We're polluted by the world in so many ways. Consumerism, wealth. Look, money's not evil in itself. It's defining yourself by money. You can be the poorest person in the world and be completely ruined and um, polluted by the desire for wealth. Or you could have the most money in the world and be the most generous, kind, untouched by wealth. Do you understand the difference? So Jesus is saying, look, don't be polluted. Or James is saying, don't be polluted by the world. Don't be formed in the image of the world, but you got to be separate from it. Holy, set apart in your purchasing, in your time, in your money, all those things. We'll talk about that in the future. So I want to end with this, and then we're going to baptize folks. Uh, are you a doer of the word or not? Are you going to keep singing songs about Jesus? Or are you going to live Jesus wherever you go? Have you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you? Have you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, lived and died in human history and rose from the dead? Is that word planted in you? Have you humbled yourself to know you can't save yourself, but you need a Savior? So the first thing I want to invite you to do is hear it, accept it, and then do it. Amen? All right, that's all I got. There you go. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.